Hi, I'm Tim Sonova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Dina Hagag. Dina currently serves as president and CEO of United States Artists, a national arts funding organization based in Chicago, found online at unitedstatesartists.org. Before joining USA, she was the executive director of The Contemporary, a nomadic and non-collecting art museum in Baltimore, Maryland. Dina lectures, consults, contributes, and teaches at numerous places. She's on the board of trustees of the Detroit Institute of Arts, the Artistic Director's Circle of Prospect 5, and the Advisory Council of Recess. She received her MFA in curatorial practice from Maryland Institute College of Art and a BA from Rutgers in Art History and Philosophy. She is proudly a first-generation Egyptian-American Muslim disabled woman of Afro-Arab descent, and we are honored she's with us today. Without further ado, Dina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hi. Good morning-ish. <laughs> Good morning-ish. Am I the first one to make that joke? Yeah, we'll tell you you are. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> So, Dina, it's so good to see your face. So good to catch up. So the question we've been throwing to folks just to sort of ground us is, how are you doing and how's your community? What are you hearing from folks that you're talking to regularly? Yeah. Oh, man. How is my community? I mean, I guess my community feels like nonprofit arts administrators. I think right now I am working in collaboration with several. And I think right now my community is feeling two things at once. The first is an urgency to get work done. And I think we're really proud and honored to be doing the work that we're doing at a moment where we know that artists need so much support. And then on the other side, we're also feeling the dire pressure of supporting a really vulnerable workforce. And so I think right now my community feels like it's in a moment of extreme cognitive dissonance and just trying to take it one day at a time. Yeah. So Tim read your bio, but are there things right now that you think are sort of coming to the fore as you would introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. I mean, I think a few things are coming to the fore for me right now. Tim noted very quickly that I'm a disabled person. And I think living as a disabled person in the middle of a global health pandemic is a very specific experience. I am also a disabled person that has a tremendous amount of economic privilege. I have this, for the time being at least, a full-time paying job with health benefits, a well-paying job. I am in a partnership with someone who also has a well-paying job. And so I am disabled and yet have economic resources to take care of myself in a very scary moment. But I think what's been really coming to the fore is the experience of the disability community right now in particular, and then the intersections of low-income disabled folks who I don't know that this is affecting anyone more than folks in that level of precarity. So that community for me feels like the one I am working in the deepest favor of sort of in a quiet day-to-day way and the one I'm the most worried about and the one I think about like every morning and every night. But yeah, so I think of all the identities and hats and caps, I think, man, being in a disabled body is a really specific thing right now. Yeah, I think it's been interesting to see over the last over the last couple of years in particular, but always when nations go through trauma. Yeah. You know, in 2016, I felt like it was black women who really sort of charted the path for a possible way out of there that unfortunately a lot of folks didn't follow. But those were the Amen. Those, were, those were the voices that really sort of rose up. And yeah. I think right now it is it's folks who are really, really steeped in disability justice that are kind of that are charting a yeah. path for us. And I, I don't know that we're doing a great job hearing those voices candidly. 
we've had some, probably one of our most memorable conversations on here was with Cyrus Marcus Ware, who's based mm -hmm. in Toronto. But yeah, I think you're spot on around this moment being one where we have to look to, to that community for sort of guidance. Yeah. Yesterday, I was talking to the folks at Disart in Grand Rapids, and that was sort of the conversation. It was just like, oh, but will folks really listen? Will they know where to look? Will those lessons survive the what feels like the immediacy of COVID-19? And I think in like really big structural ways, a ton of stuff I think is really clear. Never again will employers be able to go back and say work can't be done remotely for specifically office workers, right? Which is like something the disability community has had to face forever. But then also these conversations around healthcare and insurance and the medical industrial complex and these things that I think the disabled community has been on the front lines of since the dawn of our nation, more or less. And now I think all of those conversations are coming to a head. But I think one thing that was really clear on our call yesterday and in general is there's looking to disabled folks for sort of logistical and infrastructural changes. Like, what does it mean to work remotely? What does it mean to be in a moment of physical distancing? because so many disabled people live in a lot of physical distancing as a result of their own wellness and, and care needs. But I think the thing that's actually really funny to me is there's a difference between social distancing and physical distancing. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways that people make communities and there's lots of ways that people have to learn new intellectual and conceptual vernaculars to survive a physical distancing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many folks are talking to disabled people about that. So I don't think it's enough to be like, oh, y'all have been using things like Zoom since the beginning of time. Cool. Like, let's try to, it's like, no, there's like a whole other lexicon that exists in sort of disability and crypt justice that I don't think people are really, really getting into that I think could help non-disabled people in this moment mm -hmm. of extreme terror as both physical distancing and possibly social distancing is such a new phenomenon. Yeah. Are there organizations or individuals collectives that are doing really, really great work that our audience should be listening to right now? Yeah. I mean, I think the folks at Sins and Ballad in Oakland, you know, in the Bay Area have been on the front lines of this thing since forever. And I think anything that they're touching or thinking about is super important. I think the Harriet Tubman Collective is incredible and I think exists at the intersections of both disability, but also racial justice, abolitionist movements. I think there's a book, Care Work, by Leah Lakshmi, that I think should be just like required reading for everyone right now. And then I think there's just a lot of notable scholars, Eli Clare, John Lee Clark. I mean, I mean, it's just sort of an endless yeah. list of folks. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think I'm curious about what does a bibliography look like? And I think also the tension of a lot of this right now, it's like there's an entire community whose lived experience and knowledge of this is so important. And it's also a community that can be easily exhausted if mm -hmm. folks, I think it's one thing to talk to disabled folks who are like, oh, I am being invited to be on a bunch of webinars, but also the pace and the immediacy of that is so important. So I do think looking at pre-existing scholarship or books or texts or videos could be super helpful. But yeah, so sorry, a very long answer to your question is like, I can't stop thinking about disabled people every second of every day. Yeah. No, More so than usual. No, yeah, no, we're taking notes. I think that was really helpful. One of the things I'm curious about on this live stream We've gotten so many resources for folks and just in these conversations like that, like just lists of, I feel like we do have to put together like a bibliography of all the, all the thinking and thought that has come out of what people have been reading, thinking, listening to, to sort of guide us out of this, because it's hard to I feel like we continually are like Columbusing communities. 
like they've been there. We discover them, we listen to them, and then we put them back on the shelf until the next crisis that could have been averted if we had just held on to them for a little bit longer. Yeah. So much there. I'm fortunate that we have the transcripts and it feels like next week is probably the end of our daily live streams with six weeks of daily live streams. And that feels like just sitting with the transcripts, reading, reflecting on it because they like this conversation is so informative. There's so much here and thinking about what does a future look like where everyone thrives and what do we need to do right now to make sure that we're not missing this moment. And you mentioned, we can't go back to where people say some jobs can't be done remotely. And I fear that we will go back to that. How do we hold on to, yes, the jobs that you said couldn't be done remotely now are done remotely. And that thing that could have been an email, but it said it was a meeting, it was an email. And so what's the responsibility of organizations as leaders, as accomplices and allies in the organizations, inside the sector, in the sector to support and hold on to the things that we've proven that can be done? And just iterate and adjust and improve on those things to move forward rather than everyone goes back to the office on a some date and we forget that we were able to do this. So I guess that's personally what I'm wrestling with. How do we not miss this maybe once in a lifetime moment? So yeah, on a podcast, I would edit out that last part where I just rambled until I like ended at three periods, but on a live stream, yeah, there you go. No, we love a live stream. We need a little danger, you know, yeah. a, little, <laughs> need a little danger these yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> on that remote work thread. So Tina in the green room, I realized we didn't know where we were physically. Yeah. Same um, tell me as you're leading us artists, can you give us a sense of how your staff and your organization was working? And whether slash how you've pivoted right now, what that felt like as a leader? Yeah. So United States Artists is headquartered in Chicago, where we have a little over 15 full part-time employees and a couple of contractors. And we went to our office every day. I, for the past three years, have been living, that I've had this job, have actually been living between Chicago and New York. So in the weeks that I was in Chicago, went to a sort of traditional nine-ish 10-ish to like (laughs) six or seven-ish job with the rest of our staff. Our lease was actually up in February and throughout all of February and into March, we started all working remotely in a moment where there was about five weeks-ish that our offices were being transitioned. And so actually, it was kind of good practice where we all figured out how to talk to each other remotely kind of right before COVID hit. So we moved into a new office. It's actually called the Fabric Impact House in Chicago, where a group of justice funders all moved in together. So we moved in with folks like the Woods Fund, Field Foundations, Pillars Fund, and have spent the last year cultivating this kind of communal workspace. We all moved in there for about two weeks before the stay-at-home order came down. So now my entire staff is all back out in their remote working situations. Right now, I have moved to New York full-time. I am here in Brooklyn currently and communicating via Zoom and Slack with our staff, who are, again, predominantly in Chicago. We have one contractor here in New York and then two full-time staff in Baltimore that have also been remote pretty much the entire time. And so I think I was still planning on going back and forth to Chicago, even though I have made New York my primary residence. And clearly, that does not feel like it is on the horizon And one thing that's coming up a lot for our staff right now in terms of how we work is questions about, well, if the stay-at-home order lifts, like, are people expected to just go back to the office if they don't feel safe? And there's a thing the news says, and I think a lot of us lately are feeling like, whoa, there's like the thing a spreadsheet says, 
there's the thing my policy says, but then there's the right thing to do. And I feel like how people work is one of those matters. And the board and I are, are unanimous in this, like, we will get back to our office if and when it feels like that's the right call to make. But we're not deciding that based on the government's perception mm-hmm. of the COVID-19 situation. And I think right now our staff clearly misses one another, like, or at least I miss them. It's kind of a weird thing to to adjust to everybody remotely all the time. But I think we're all doing the best we can in such a weird situation. This has been one of the things that Lauren and I have been talking a lot about offline or off the live stream is the responsibility of employers to provide a safe workplace, even is concerning what's coming out now around limiting liability for employers, around workplace safety, around OSHA, and then what the responsibility is going to be and how this is really going to come down to leaders and organizations living their values. And it's unfortunate in a lot of reasons, and it's infuriating to think that we're balancing dying people with cash to states or whatever that might be. And I think having the message out there around, because a lot of people don't understand what OSHA means from an office. You don't have to really think about it in an office, but what does a a workplace free of harm look like and and what it's supposed to be in in our responsibilities? And even if you legally could do it or legally could get away with something, that's not the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think a few things. I think this thing has made so many things perfectly clear. I think the first thing it's made clear is like every policy is just a damn Google document. You can just change the Word doc. That means you can make life better for your employees, or you can make things worse, like scale back regulations that are, again, just words that humans sit around a table and determine together. There's no big magical force we owe anybody anything except for our own morality, right? And so I think in terms of a staff, like a part of me feels like doing no harm is also psychological and intellectual. And I think right now, USA, we're, it's rough, man. We, a couple of weeks ago, joined a coalition of six other nonprofit partners to start an artist relief fund. USA funds artists. It's what we do. We give them unrestricted grants. We trust fully that people can decide for themselves how to use a financial resource to take the best care of their own needs. But we are a philanthropic organization that moves at a relatively glacial pace. It takes us a year to identify who these people are. We are very thoughtful. We dot every I, we cross every T. And when you do something that's a relief effort, the pace of that thing is different. When Lauren was talking about running a slower marathon, we went from being like a bunch of bowlers to like sprinters overnight. It's really different. And I think One thing that's been really, really clear, at least for USA staff, and I imagine many of our coalition partners, is we are all worried about our people taking the best care of themselves at the same time when our people are trying to help however they can. But to help means they have to work at a pace that is not okay. It's not okay to meet the demands of COVID-19 if you are really trying to help people. And I think a few things we've implemented or we're trying is like we're trying to take everybody to a four-day work week in the next two weeks Mm-hmm. As a way to say, just take one extra day. It's like, we really want to meet the challenge of supporting artists and dire financial needs. But we also want to meet the challenge of protecting our staffs who are going through so many different things at their own home lives. And so I think we're all just thinking about how to do that. It's not an easy task. And so I, I don't know, my heart goes out to everybody in leadership right now. But I do think we know what the right thing to do is. And we know the difference between what the spreadsheet says and what we should actually be doing. And I don't think we'll forgive ourselves. 
At the end of the day, we will look back on this time and the choices we made will be perfectly clear, not just to our communities, but to ourselves. And so I think every leader should really be sitting with what this will feel like in a few months when you've made these decisions on behalf of the people you're supposed to take care of. Yeah. So this, I had virtual dinner with uh, Susie Davaya last week, which was hilarious, of course. Um, Yes. And so can you talk about who is your partner with the Relief Fund? Can you talk about it? She said it was your brainchild and gave you all the cred. Of course she did, no. (laughs) So so tell us about the fund. And I'm particularly curious about a couple of words you used, trust being one of them, and then sort of speed slash pace because the difference between immediate relief and long-term recovery is so, so vast. And I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts on those things. So yes, thank you, Susie. But no, I think, I think a few things. I actually think immediate relief, the pace feels entirely structural. We all just had to do certain infrastructural things faster to pull something like this off. I think that's happening across industries right now. I actually think the pace for long-term recovery to me feels less structural and more intellectual. Mm -hmm. Like we just got to change our minds about a few things real quick before we can even get into a conversation to talk about long-term recovery. And I only want to say that because I want to go back to the word trust. It is very, very clear how much we distrust poor folks and folks who live in Mm -hmm. low-income communities, right? Like we've always known this. And I think Right now, something like Artist Relief is a bridge to those communities. We've had to pace hella fast to meet that within the infrastructures of our orgs. Creative Capital, Artadia, Foundation for Contemporary Art, Academy of American Poets, Young Arts, the MAP Fund in USA. We're all little baby orgs. And now all of a sudden, we're like an over 50-person coalition that is like dragging at this thing. But I think everyone wants to have a conversation about what is the long-term recovery going to look like. Mm-hmm. And to me, the pacing there is just how fast are we going to change our minds about how much we trust poor people? Like truly, like how fast can we shift that psychology societally before we even all get together to figure out what does life look like for the next year, 18 months? Because even now in the middle of needs being entirely clarified across every industry and in every region of our country, there are still industries that are questioning handouts and charity and how to inform how certain money is spent to vulnerable communities. And I'm like, oh, the pace on that needs to move faster. Yeah, Yeah, you're so right on that. And I think part of that's just nonprofits only exist because rich people don't trust poor people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, amen. Yeah. I was always astounded when I was working in a homeless shelter. I managed a $20 million stuff program. We were giving out backpacks to kids and everything else, gift cards. And the question I got more often than not when someone gave me a $50 gift card was, how does your organization guarantee that these people are not going to spend this gift card on alcohol <laughs> in a store? And I would look at them in Bethesda, Maryland and be like, your 16 year old gets wasted every weekend. Literally. And you don't think that someone who is raising three kids on $700 a month in Washington, DC, that you've rapidly gentrified gets to buy a case of beer. Like, I <laughs> just don't. But that piece around trusting, it's a radical idea that we would, in this, in the United States, we would trust people to understand, one, to look out for their communities with any sort of relief effort and to take care of like those who are sort of closest to them. So y'all raise what, like 11 or 12 million in a couple? Yeah, we're at a little over 11 million right now. We launched with 10. I think now we've raised like another million and a half since we launched. Yeah, and we're redistributing it. 
someone is at my door. Is this deeply embarrassing that this doorbell keeps ringing? No, Can we take a walk it's while a I really, talk? It's a really cute. Yeah, totally. It's a really yeah. cute doorbell. Just, Lauren looked you know, down at her. At, Lauren looked down at her desk, and I thought, "Is this a new ring on your phone, or is this like the old Nokia phone no, ring?" This yeah. is amazing. No, no, here we go. No, there you go. You know, I feel like that's not an old Nokia phone ring because that ring is very distinctive. It's not that cute. Oh my, <laughs> my phone ring is not that cute. I love it. Yeah, we launched with $10 million. We're distributing it in $5,000 unrestricted grants, cross-discipline. And I think the number one thing we're prioritizing is just need. But it's rough. So we wanted to launch with $10 million specifically to be able to fund 100 artists a week until September. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, again, is we just wanted to make sure we reached artists where communication's not going to travel fast versus yeah. spending out $10 million in like a month. Yeah. It's just that way, there's no way coastal cities will hear visual art will hear about it faster there was no way to do that equitably. But in our first cycle, which closed last week, we got over 55,000 applications. I want to real clarify. Yeah, thousand. we wanted 300 of those people. Yes, 55,000. Okay. Yeah. Which I think brings me to the single biggest adamant revelation about this whole thing, which is on one hand, the arts are an economic engine, and we all know this, and we're constantly trying to justify ourselves in this frame. But I think this thing really is like, damn, we are like a workforce. We are a massive, massive multidisciplinary workforce. And I think in a moment where I think COVID-19 has really lost the narrative around how the United States takes care of its workforce, Mm -hmm. it's super clarified that being a gig worker in the United States, it's being a worker period in the United States is hard Mm -hmm. and complicated, but being a gig worker is, there is nothing for you. And it really doesn't matter that, I mean, it does matter, of course, that Congress wrote 1099 employees into the CARES Act under unemployment. But this is also a moment where unemployment can't keep up with any worker, let alone adding a huge workforce. So I think at Artist Relief, reading these applications is wild because it really clarifies our industry. And our industry is akin to restaurant workers, domestic workers, transportation workers, sometimes because artists are both, a nanny and a poet, a painter and a bartender. But then when they're not and their sole income is coming from their work in a self-employed way, they move at the same speed that some of these other industries do. So I really am hopeful that a long-term strategy is that we band together with other industries of gig workers. We like fight this fight that people need to be insured. The number of things we're reading that could be preventable are like, what? That part's been hard. Yeah, I think in hindsight, when we look back at the decade of 2010 to 2020, the rise of the concept of gig worker and the gig economy, and that going from a side gig to people's full-time work is something that we didn't consent to as workers. And it happened. And it's been interesting working in the art sector and seeing that from sort of working in homeless shelters and seeing how that became a lifeline for people to get out of poverty. But I don't think it did the same thing for the arts and culture sector. I'm really curious about how we start to reframe work and absolutely 100% reframing solidarity with other sectors. Restaurant Opportunity Coalition is doing amazing work, has always done amazing work. And to me, that's the bedrock. You can't meet a restaurant worker in New York City who wasn't also (laughs) an actor, actress, performer, artist. And so I think you're so right on that. Can we ask the suitcase question? Yeah, let's go with the suitcase. We've got two minutes left, so we need to get suitcase in. Okay. Tina, life is a suitcase. You're carrying this bag around with you. We've been in this thing for like five weeks, this pandemic. What was in your suitcase before we went to the pandemic that you are not taking with you after we're out, if we're ever out? And what have you discovered during the pandemic that you were keeping in your suitcase forever? Oh, my Lord. Okay. (laughs) 
So first of all, I've cooked more than I ever have in my life. I would like to keep that. I'm amazed a little bit that when you cook, you just have to like wash dishes constantly. (laughs) This is blowing my mind that you like eat on a dish and then you wash it and then you just put more food on it and then you wash it and then you just put more food on it and then you wash it. So I feel a little bit, I mean, but yeah, the cooking has been incredibly, I want to take that with me. I've been super into risottos. You can just totally zone out for 20 minutes and stir and you just really get into a rhythm and you can't really be on your phone or it's just you and the risotto and something about that's like really intimate and nice. (laughs) So that I want to take with me forever cooking. What I want to leave behind, I mean, honestly, and maybe it's not possible. Maybe it's, I want to leave behind the performances of my profession. I think the thing about COVID that I've loved so much is for a second, for a glimmering second, lots of incredible people were willing to break the fourth wall together. And it was cross industry. It was like the lawyers, philanthropists, the nonprofits. Everyone was just like, but this is how the world really is. And we met certain challenges because we all just broke the fourth wall. And I think maybe it's a little twofold. I want to leave behind all the things that made that not as possible Mm pre-COVID. And I want to take with me this way that everybody together could say, hey, I know we think we ought to do it this way, but what about this? And then everyone in the room is like, yeah, there's literally no reason we can't do it that way. Let's go. Yeah. (laughs) So that the last thing I do want to take is the power of a coalition. And I think it's what I love so much about your broadcast is in some weird way, it's like this strange morning-ish coalition moment you've made every morning with people in the workplace. But that sense of collaboration, I think, is actually really mighty. Well, and with that, or at time, but before we go, are there any, we can't just stop that and you can be like, that's where we're ending it. Are there any parting thoughts, anything you wanted to include that you didn't? No, I'd like to just reiterate that everybody needs to read books by disabled people. Yeah. Follow disabled yeah. people on the internet. Just well, find your disabled homies, like fast. Yeah, that's through, it. Thank yeah. you. Dina, amazing to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, sorry. If you want to say thank you again. Oh, no, sorry. Thank you. No, no, no. Bye, 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 bye. Oh, God. I'm so, this is like, this is the worst ending to the show. Yes, it was so amazing. It also might have been the best. Continue the Work Shouldn't Suck live adventure with us on our next episode when we're joined by Diane Ragsdale and Andrew Taylor. Miss us in the meantime? You can download more Work Shouldn't Suck episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice. And rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck live episodes over on workshouldn'tsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.